Now let's pray and get started. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Um, We thank you that you've given us a record of your thoughts and your desires and your loves. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us a safe place to come and study. Lord, I thank you for every woman here who wants to dig deeper into your word. Father, please use your word as you promised it will to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So by default, I am the introduction queen. Um, We've completed the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Law or the Torah. I'm so proud of us, and I'm very glad that we did it. If you've been here through all of the five books, you probably are feeling the weight of the law pressing down on you. I know I am, and I know a lot of the other leaders have said the same thing. I'm so happy to be back in the New Testament. So where are we in redemption history? Well, the seed that was promised to Adam and Eve, who would crush the head of the serpent, has come. The descendant promised to Jacob, who would bless the nations, has come. The son promised to David, who would have an everlasting kingdom, has come. And that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He has come. He has died for our sins. He has risen from the grave. He has ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The Holy Spirit has come and the church has begun. And that's where we are in redemption history. So let me start by explaining to you why we chose Galatians and James to do next. These are the two earliest letters sent to the church. The church was founded at Pentecost around 33 AD. James' letter was written between 40 and 45. We're not sure exactly. And Paul's letter to the Galatians was written around 47, 48 AD. They both deal with the first real problem in the church, the first big controversy. What is the relationship between the law and the gospel? What is the relationship between grace and works? And since we spent so much time studying the law, we thought this would be a good place to go next, to study what the relationship is between the law and where we are now. So to understand why that's even an issue, we need to look at a little bit of history and context. The early church was thoroughly Jewish. To our ears, 2,000 years later, that sounds crazy. But it was Jewish. It was made up of observant religious Jews. For the first 15 to 20 years of the church's history, that's who the church was. Observant, ethnic, religious Jews. Jesus was born a Jew into a Jewish family under the law. He was an observant Jew. He kept the Torah perfectly. When he chose his 12 disciples, he chose 12 Jewish men. His ministry began in Israel and remained mostly in Israel. He said to a Canaanite woman, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. When he sent his 12 disciples out to cast out demons and heal in Matthew 10, he told them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the house of the lost sheep of Israel. 
John 1 tells us he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, this is not to say the Gentiles were not included, because they were. Jesus commended that same Canaanite woman for her faith and healed her daughter. In Luke 7, Jesus healed the servant of a Roman centurion and said of him, not even in Israel have I found such faith. But Jesus began with and ministered mostly to the Jews. Now, this also does not mean that the gospel was only for the Jews. It wasn't. The gospel was for the whole world. It was always intended to be for the whole world. Jesus' final commission to the disciples was to take the gospel to all the nations, to the ends of the earth. But it went first to the Jews. Why was that? Well, because only the Jews knew Yahweh, the one true and living God. Only the Jews had the Holy Scriptures. Only the Jews understood what it meant to sin against this holy God and what it took to be forgiven. Only the Jews had the prophecies about the coming Messiah. Only the Jews could have understood Jesus and his mission, and that's why it went to the Jews first. So on the day the church was born, Pentecost around 33 AD, thousands of pilgrims, devout Jewish men, had come because it was a pilgrimage holiday to the temple in Jerusalem. They heard Peter's sermon, And that day, 3,000 of them were converted. The Lord added to their number day by day, it says in the book of Acts. And among the people who were added were many priests and Pharisees. Peter and John taught when they taught at the Jewish temple. Acts 2 tells us that the believers met together daily and went to the temple together. When James wrote his letter, he wrote to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, that is, Jewish Christians who were scattered abroad. The early church was considered to be a sect of Judaism, made up of Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah promised by their Jewish scriptures. The church was always intended to begin there and then spread to the nations. So how would this early church deal with non-Jews who became believers. And that was the issue. Well, the first Gentile convert appeared to be Cornelius in Acts 10. He was a Roman centurion who lived in Joppa. And Peter was directed in a vision to go to his house. Peter explained what he understood this vision to mean. When he got there, he said, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. I'm not sure Peter had the right interpretation of the law there because it wasn't unlawful, but that's, that was their attitude. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And when Peter presented the gospel, the gospel Cornelius and his whole household believed, and Peter baptized them all. Well, then Peter went back to the church in Jerusalem, the mother church, and told them what had happened. They seemed a little bit surprised by it, but they glorified God and said, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
But Acts 11.2 tells us that the circumcision party criticized him. This is the first we've heard about the circumcision party. What on earth was that? Well, to the Jews, we need to look at how they looked at the world. To the Jews, the world could be divided into two people groups, the Jews and everyone else. The Jews considered themselves God's chosen people, and they were. But they'd become very proud and a little bit hypocritical, maybe a lot hypocritical, about what it meant to be chosen by God. By Jesus' day, many of them had forgotten or overlooked what we saw in Deuteronomy last semester. God chose them not because they were a strong and mighty nation, not because they were more righteous than anybody else, and not because he knew they would obey the law. In fact, he knew they would not obey the law. God chose them because that's how he chose to fulfill his promise to Abraham. And his promise to Abraham was that the nations would be blessed through them. Jews were born Jewish, born under the Mosaic law. They had and were obligated to keep all of the law. They worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem. They made the appropriate sacrifices. They kept the dietary and purity laws. They observed the Sabbath. And most importantly, they were circumcised. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant between Yahweh and his chosen people. Hundreds of years before the law was given at Mount Sinai, God gave the sign of circumcision to Abraham. He commanded Abraham to circumcise all of his generations. And he told Abraham, anyone who is uncircumcised will be cut off from his people because he has broken my covenant. So circumcision was the sign of the covenant. And that's why you see so much about circumcision in Galatians. So there were Jews and there was everyone else. Everyone else in the Bible are called the Gentiles, the nations, the Greeks, the foreigners, the uncircumcised, all terms that mean not Jews. For the most part, these people didn't know Yahweh. The Jews didn't associate with them in any way. And they were prohibited from participating in the religious life of Israel. On the temple grounds in Jerusalem, there was a court called the Court of the Gentiles. And it was um, the only place the Jew- that Gentiles could go on the temple grounds was this Court of the Gentiles. It was separated by a long way from the area where the sacrifices and the prayers and the worship was done. It was separated by a stone fence, and the fence had a sign on it threatening death to any Gentile who crossed that line. Those signs of it, some of those signs have actually been found and are in a museum in Israel. It says their death will be on their own head. So this is where the Gentiles could go and as close as they could go to the temple area. This was um, the courtyard that the priests of the temple had turned into a marketplace that Jesus cleared out when he cleansed the temple, the only place the Gentiles could go. Why would a Gentile even want to go to the temple? Well, some of them were just tourists because it was a marvelous sight to see, but most of them were what the Jews called God-fearers. They called them God-fearers or righteous Gentiles. They were Gentiles 
who followed Yahweh the best they could. Um, Cornelius was one of those. It says of Cornelius in Acts that he was devout and feared God, that he gave alms generously and prayed continually to God. So that was what the Jews would have called the God-fearer, and those were the Gentiles who would have been in the temple court. God-fearers sometimes attended the synagogues so they could hear the scriptures read and have teaching from the rabbis in the synagogues. In Acts 13, Paul addresses the synagogue at Antioch and Pisidia, men of Israel and you who fear God. So there were the Jews and then there were the God-fearers at this synagogue. He also found God-fearing men and women in the synagogues in Thessalonica and Berea. But as Gentiles, they could not worship in the temple. When they were in Jerusalem, the closest they could get was that outer court. Jews believed that to enter into the religious life of Israel, to worship Yahweh the way he meant to be worshipped, one had to become a proselyte, a convert to Judaism. If a man wanted to become a proselyte, he had to be examined by a panel of rabbis, he had to be circumcised, and he had to keep all of the law. He had to become a Jew. So we have these three facts. The early Christians considered themselves to be a sect of Judaism. They were Messianic Jews, Jews who believed that the Messiah had come and that he was Jesus. And that was the church. To worship Yahweh, it had always been a requirement that you had to become a Jew. And then we have all these Gentiles coming in. What are we going to do with them? And that was the question the church faced. So, did a Gentile have to become a Jew to become a Christian? That sounds like a crazy question, doesn't it? But that is exactly what the church was debating about at that time. I can totally understand their confusion. That had always been the way it was. So Peter would say no. He baptized Cornelius and his household when the Holy Spirit came upon them and gave evidence that they had been converted. The Jerusalem church leadership apparently would say no, because they didn't criticize Peter for baptizing Cornelius, but they rejoiced that the Gentiles had found salvation. But you can see from the mention of the circumcision party that within the church, there was a different, different opinion. The circumcision... That's such a hard word to say. The circumcision party is also called the party of the Pharisees. So you can kind of see where this is going, can't you? Um, We call them the Judaizers, although that term is not in the Bible. It's men who believe they they were in the church, they were followers of Jesus, but they believed that you had to become a Jew. Their answer would be yes, a Gentile does have to become a Jew to be a Christian. He had to be circumcised and he had to follow the Torah. So the issue simmered for some time because the church was still mostly Jewish. But when Paul began his missionary journeys in 46 to 47 AD, Gentiles started pouring into the church. And this really became an issue that had to be dealt with. What were they going to do with all these Gentiles that were pouring into the church? Did they have to become Jewish to be Christians, to follow Christ? Or to put it another way, does a Gentile have to do works of righteousness like keeping the Torah and being circumcised in order to be saved? 
And Paul tackles that question head-on in his letter to the Galatians. Now, Paul is the author of Galatians. Um, There's really no dissent about that. He says so in verses 1-1 and 5-2. In 6-1, he says he's writing with his own hand. And throughout the letter, he gives some of his history. Um, Almost a third of the content of Galatians is Paul's testimony. Who was he writing to? Well, he was writing to the churches in Galatia, which he founded on his first missionary journey. Um, the Roman province of Galatia, there, there's some question about what the boundaries actually were of Galatia because it changed over time. But during Paul's time, it was the Roman province of Galatia, and it stretched from north to south in central, what we call Turkey today. That was Galatia. Um, the Galatian cities mentioned in the book of Acts are Antioch and in Pisidia, which is different from Antioch, Syria, which was Paul's sending church. Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And those are all mentioned in Acts 13 and 14. So these are the churches Paul was writing to. When was Galatians written? Well, the churches were founded in 46 to 47 AD, so after that, at least 47. Acts 15 tells us that when Paul and Barnabas finished their first missionary journey, they went back to their home church in Antioch, Syria. And some men came from Judea teaching, and I'm quoting, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This was the circumcision party. I'm thinking Paul found out that these same men or men associated with them had visited the churches in Galatia, teaching that same thing. And the book of Acts tells us that Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion and debate with them, which is Luke's very understated way of saying there was a great deal of very loud arguing going on about this issue (laughs) between Paul and Barnabas and these Judaizers. So the church leaders at Antioch, Syria, said, y'all go to Jerusalem and get this figured out. Go see the apostles and the elders at the mother church in Jerusalem and get this, this question settled. So that's what they did. That was the first church council, the Jerusalem council. It took place in 48 or 49 AD. And it was simply to settle this question. Is faith in Jesus enough? or or their works involved. So at the council, both Peter and Paul gave their testimony of Gentiles who had been saved under their ministries. Um, The Bible says there was a great deal of debate on this issue, and I'm sure there was. I have a friend who's Jewish, and he says if you have two Jews in one room, there are at least three opinions. (laughs) So I'm sure there was a lot of debate that happened. It wasn't an easy decision. It wasn't a clear-cut decision. Peter gave a passionate plea saying this. God bore witness to them, that's the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why should we put God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, that's circumcision in the Old Testament law, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And finally, James, Jesus' half-brother who wrote the book of James, 
who was the head of the Jerusalem church, gave an answer from the council. And the answer was, no, Gentile converts do not need to become Jews. So I think we can safely assume that Paul's letter to the Galatians was written before the Jerusalem council because he doesn't mention it in the letter. And you would think if a decision decision had been handed down, he would have said so to the Galatians, but he doesn't. So Galatians was most likely written in 47 or 48 after Paul's first missionary journey, probably after these Judaizers showed up in Antioch, Syria, but before the Jerusalem Council. If you want to place it in the book of Acts, it's around Acts 15, verse 1 or 2. So what is Galatians about? Galatians is about the gospel. Paul's letter to the churches of these baby Christians, remember, these Christians are like one to two years old in the Lord. They're baby Christians. It's an urgent, serious letter in defense of the one and only true gospel, and a warning not to fall for any other gospel, which is really not a gospel at all. False false teachers had come into the church telling the Galatians that Jesus' work was not enough to accomplish their salvation. That was essentially their message. Yes, you have to believe in Jesus, they said, But you also have to be circumcised and follow the law in order to be saved. You must add works, your own human works, to Jesus' work. And some of the Galatians had apparently fallen for it because some of them had been circumcised already. Why is this teaching so dangerous? Because it perverts the gospel. The gospel is the good news. That's literally what it means, good news. And the good news is this, Jesus Christ has accomplished everything necessary for our full and complete salvation, period. That's the gospel. At the cross, a great exchange took place. Jesus took on himself God's wrath and the just penalty for our sin, even sin we haven't yet committed, so that we would not have to bear that penalty. And this is usually what we think of when we think of our salvation. But there was another great exchange that took place at the cross as well. Jesus' own righteousness, which he accomplished by keeping the law perfectly, something none of us are able to do, was credited or imputed to our account. We could not possibly earn it. It was just given to us, his own righteousness. Paul tells them, the gospel is this, everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, are justified by faith in Christ alone and not by works of the law. There's no human effort or merit that can be added to the finished work of Christ, not circumcision or the law or anything else. In fact, he says, if human righteousness could accomplish salvation, Christ died for no purpose. He tells them neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. But what counts is that they are new creations in the Holy Spirit. Years later, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul states his position really succinctly, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. 
For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Your salvation and even your faith were a gift of God. There are no works necessary or even possible to earn them. Now, does that mean there's no place for works in the church? Absolutely not. doesn't mean that at all. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. We're to walk in good works because we've already been made right with God. Works are a result of our salvation, not a cause of our salvation. A life that has truly been changed by salvation will express itself in good works. So Galatians is a letter about freedom in Christ. That's why I chose Galatians 5.1 for my verse for this introduction. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We are free from the yoke of the law. Now, as 21st century Gentile Christians, we're not really tempted to convert to Judaism to be better Christians. Our temptation is legalism. I think at heart, we are all recovering Pharisees. Sometimes we fall into the trap of trying to impress God or even to control God by what we do or by what we refrain from doing, by our works righteousness. We think things like this to ourselves, and we would never say them out loud because we're good Christian women. But we think, God, I go to church faithfully. I teach Sunday school and I pray every day. You owe me this, whatever it is you're asking for. We think, God, I don't sin the way that person does. So why is this happening to me? I'm a better person than she is. Or we think, God, I failed you again and fallen into that same sin that I thought I'd conquered. Am I really saved? That's legalism. All of that is legalism. Thinking that our good works have some kind of merit before God. And we can somehow impress God by what we do or what we don't do. That our worth or our value to God is dependent on our works. The gospel sets us free from striving and comparing and uncertainty. And someone, for someone like me, who's kind of an OCD perfectionist, that is good news. <laughs> We're loved with a faithful, unchanging love because of what Christ has done for us, because of his merit. Any righteousness we have before God is not our own, it's his. That's why it's unchanging, and that's why it's so freeing. Freedom, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Does that mean we're free to do anything at all? Absolutely not. That's the other side of the coin. That is antinomianism, which is lawlessness, basically, um, rejection of the law. The law does have a place in the Christian life. 
we talked last semester about the law being a window into the heart of God. We can see in the law things God loves and values. And as his child, those are things we would love and value as well. The law, as Dr. Young said, is a guide to a life that is pleasing to God. It's a guide. And that's the freedom the gospel gives us. Through the finished work of Christ and the active work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we're free to live a life that conforms us to the image of God, to live the way he created mankind to live back in Genesis before the fall, to live as true sons and daughters of God. We don't desire to live this way to earn our salvation, but we do desire to live this way in grateful response to the unearned salvation we've already been given. We're free from the yoke of sin to walk in good works. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Free from the yoke of performance. Free from the yoke of sin. Ladies, I hope Galatians will teach us this semester to rejoice in the freedom we have in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do thank you for that freedom. We do thank you that the merit we have before you is not our own, but his. Father, please um, use this time to teach us about the freedom we have in Christ. Help us to relax into a salvation that has been bought for us with a great price and given freely to us, and to live the way you've designed us to live, in love and good works. Father, we thank you for this great salvation, and we thank you in his name. Amen. All right, ladies, um, time to go to small groups. If you don't know where your small group is, I think Kim's got a list in the back.